Blog Talk Radio. February 8th, 2017 edition of Don't Let It Go Unheard, and this is where we discuss news, politics, and culture from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy. Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism uniquely upholds the right to the pursuit of your own happiness. I'm your host, Amy Pigoff, and I have a warning for you today. I'm going to have a lot of artistic license and psychological speculation going on in today's show. If you looked at the title that I've posted over on social media and then also at the blog at don'tletitgo.com and you know here on Blog Talk Radio if you're actually listening live right now you can see from the title I'm I'm talking about something called Trump brain and that's where I'm taking quite a bit of artistic license and going to do a little bit of psychological speculation so just be warned I don't you know pretend to have knowledge you know set knowledge about these things um, so take that part with a grain of salt, but I will be expressing a certain amount of frustration uh, associated with behaviors that I'm lumping under this title of, of Trump brain. And so that's how I got this integration. Trump care is what I'm assuming we're going to end up calling the Republican replacement for Obamacare. And I want to start out today talking about that. So what, yeah, what is the title? I'm telling you about the title. Uh, the title is, Will Trump Care Cover the Effects of Trump Brain? That is the title of today's show. Will Trump Care Cover the Effects of Trump Brain? And I want to start out talking about the debate that there was last night between Bernie Sanders and Ted Cruz about the so-called future of Obamacare. And it looks like what's going to happen is that there's going to be a repeal and replace. And the replacement plan is what I'm assuming is people are going to start calling Trump Care. What is you know, what is that going to be like? What is that going to look like? What did I think about the debate? We're going to get into that. And then after, I'm going to talk a little bit about this this issue of Trump brain. And yeah, you know, is it something that requires medical attention? Perhaps some psychological attention, but you'll see that insofar as I'm thinking that there is something called Trump brain out there, I'm sympathetic with it. So um, I am sympathetic with it. I think people on both sides of the debate. And I've seen a vehement debate pro and anti-Trump among my friends who are, you know, largely objectivists. Very passionate people are getting and they're getting kind of nasty. And in a way I understand it. So we'll talk about that as well. Go to the blog at don'tletitgo.com. I don't have a whole ton of program notes for today, but you can see what I've got there, what I'm referring to. And also, if you would like to call in and participate, the number at which to do so is 
760-888-5817. Again, that's 760-888-5817. And you can also, of course, participate in the chat room over here at Blog Talk Radio. And I see I've got a number of people hanging out over there. Rob Abiera says, Ted Cruz's remarks on rights in the debate go a long way to showing why Republicans are dragging their feet on repealing Obamacare. Yeah, I think it was. I think it was quite revealing. Definitely was. Hi, Robert. Robert's over there in the chat room as well. He says, I don't think Trump brain can be cured. I understand the enthusiasm for Putin, uh, Putin to stop to the Dem freight train. Yeah. Um, putting. <laughs> was that a Freudian slip is what I want to know, Robert? Uh, Jay is talking about Cruz. He says he kept trying to appeal to caring for the sick and poor instead of upholding, and I think he means that the rights of, of every individual. Yeah, I do have a mini transcript that I created of the part that I would consider to be the crux of the debate. Now, mind you, I listened to only the first hour so far, and I got bogged down. I was taking a whole bunch of notes, and then I was making that little mini transcript. I was waiting from the very beginning of that debate for Cruz to answer the fundamental issue that Sanders raised in his opening statement. Sanders had the first opening statement. He had two minutes. He raised the fundamental issue and Cruz did not address it until an hour in the debate. And only after Sanders cornered him point blank after they had gotten out from behind the podiums. So disappointing in that regard. And I also somewhat disappointed in the answer. So we'll check that out. So, like I said, again, go to the blog, don'tletitgo.com. I put first under the program notes a link to a YouTube video that has the entire debate. When I was first watching it, uh, I, there was this post, Real Clear Politics, and they say, here's the whole debate. And then there were two videos, and then they didn't continue with the rest of it. And the thing that was so funny, for I mean, it was sad for me. I was, I was you know, scrambling around to find the rest of the debate. After the second video, at the end of the second video, was when Sanders had cornered Cruz on this fundamental question, which I'll talk about in a second. And Cruz was just about to give his answer, and then the video cuts off. And Real Clear Politics had this post saying, here's the full debate. And I had queued this up last night before I went to sleep. I was really tired. I couldn't watch it last night. And, uh, you know, I was going back this morning to watch it. And then sure enough, I didn't have all that I needed. But the video that I've posted in the program notes gives you the entire thing. What I'm guessing is that the remainder uh, that I did not see is going to be more of the same that we saw in the beginning. Cruz gave you know, his answer such as it was to the fundamental issue. We'll talk about it in a second. Uh, he gave that answer, and then they went to a commercial break, which relieved him of actually delving any deeper into that. So that is the debate. So let me let me tell you a little bit about this. I mean, in essence, the, these are the two positions, right? Bernie Sanders comes in and he admits basically openly that Obamacare is just one step toward getting single payer, which is his ultimate goal. His ultimate goal is to have socialized medicine, pure socialized medicine in our country. Why is it? He says health care is a right. Now, why does he say health care is a right? He does not say. You know, he'll say things like, oh, it's terrible that people can't get the health care they need. People need health care, stuff like that. In terms of any so-called argument that he offers, there's only two things that he said. 
first of all, he said that every other industrialized nation has socialized medicine. We're the only ones not to have it. Those of you who have studied introductory logic know that that's just an appeal to authority. He's appealing to these industrialized Western nations out there. They all do it. We're the only ones who don't. That makes us therefore bad. No argument beyond that. Therefore fallacious. And then the second thing he said at one point, he said, most Americans agree that health care is a right. And so, therefore, if most Americans agree, then he puts the burden of proof on Cruz to say why it isn't. Now, if it's really true that most Americans believe that health care is a right, it would be really important for Cruz, a leading politician that a number of Americans respect, to actually explain why health care is not a right in the clearest and most fundamental, thorough way possible, given that he's got this great platform from CNN. But as we see, he doesn't. Um, and and you know, but the, but you know, in terms of that being an argument for Bernie Sanders' point that healthcare is a right, no, that's not an argument at all. It's just most Americans believe this. You're just a, appealing to the majority. Argumentum ad populum is the way uh, some people phrase it, and other people would say, well, it's actually appeal to authority, but it's the quantitative version as opposed to the qualitative version. So you've got two appealing to the opinions of others. One is the opinions of the industrialized nations, which is some sort of authority, and then appealing to the crowd, the, you know, the majority of of Americans out there. Just Gene in the chat room says, thanks for the YouTube reference. I missed the debate. Yeah, go ahead and check it out. The crucial point in which Cruz actually addresses this is about 58 minutes into that video that I give you over at the blog at don'tletitgo.com. I think it's about 50 minutes into the debate itself because there's some sort of pre-debate, who knows what, in that video. And as I said, I was switching around uh, watching it in piecemeal this morning. I thought I had the whole thing at Real Clear Politics, and Real Clear Politics only gives you about half of it. Cuts it off right when Cruz is answering the question. So, you know, what happened is right at the very beginning in that first two-minute statement, Sanders asserts clearly that he thinks health care is a right. Then it also happens that at 23 minutes into the, into the debate, Sanders again asserts that health care is a right, that simply by being an American, you have a right to be given health care, quote, by government. What does that mean? By the tax dollars paid by other people, right? You have a right to have, supposedly, according to Bernie Sanders, you have a right to have the government steal from other people on your behalf and spend that money to provide you with health care. And because he thinks that that is a right, something that the government should give, then also, of course, the government is entitled morally to take control of everything. This is the essence of Sanders' position. It didn't happen until after they were already taking questions and they had taken a question from a small business owner. This poor woman, uh, not only is she what you know, Cruz called one of the, the 49ers, which means you're not going to hire more than 49 employees in your small business, even if you think you could expand profitably, you're not going to do it. Why? Because at 50 employees, that's when Obamacare kicks in and requires you to buy health insurance for these people. 
And for many small businesses, that will make them go bankrupt. They simply can't afford it. So they don't expand beyond the 49. This woman was one of them. She has five hair salons. The worst part of her story was that she could not afford health insurance premiums for herself. She provides jobs for 40 some odd people, I think 48 or something, provides jobs for them. You know, she runs this business, provides, of course, hair care services for everybody. She couldn't even afford it. That is how outrageous the premiums have gotten. And of course, she makes too much money to afford, you know, to qualify for subsidies. Um, I've always thought, you know, if you go for the subsidies, you're probably going to be forced onto an Obamacare plan, which will give you fewer choices as well. So I've been struggling, uh, you know, to pay high health insurance premiums myself, not really knowing quite what to do and hoping that the Republicans are going to fulfill their campaign promises and, and do something about this. Anyway, so this lady, right, she can't afford it. And they're going back and forth about her. And the idea is, well, look, you know, she's got this right. And now she can't afford health care. And so Ted Cruz, you know, if you think she's got a right to, you know, access or whatever, what is it? And he cornered her, you know, what cornered Cruz around this discussion of her, you know, what do you think the right is? So actually, let me go over to my little mini transcript that I've created of this part of the debate. And they're talking about this woman, this poor woman who's got a small business and who, um, you know, she basically can't even afford health care for herself. So let's see here. So uh, first of all, Sanders says, is every American entitled to health care as a right of being an American? Yes or no. And Cruz says, you know, I'm glad you asked that. Right is a word you use a lot. Let's talk about what rights are. Rights mean you have a right for government not to mess with you, for government not to do things with you. You look at the Bill of Rights. Free speech means the government can't silence you when you're speaking. Religious liberty means the government can't control who you worship, what your faith is. The Second Amendment means the government can't take away your rights. Those are rights. You know what the Declaration of Independence says, and then he goes ahead and quotes the preamble up through the pursuit of happiness. He says, so what a right is, is access to health care. What is a right is choosing your own doctor. So he uses this word access. Okay. Continuing with Cruz, he says, and if you believe that health care is a right, why on earth did you help write Obamacare? He's saying this to Sanders, which caused six million people to have their health insurance canceled. And then he, a little bit more elaboration, he says, you're denying LaRonda, this small business owner that they were addressing, what you say is her right, end quote from Cruz. Sanders comes back and he says two things. He says, first, you didn't answer the question, but I interpret your answer to be that LaRonda does not have a right. And Cruz says, no, that's not what I said. What I said was that access to health care, access to health care is a right. And then Sanders says, she has access, but she doesn't have enough money. He says access doesn't mean a damn thing. And he's talking about, you know, you have access to Donald Trump's mansion if you have the money, et cetera. It got some laughs there. He says what it means is whether people can afford it, whether they can get the health care they need. And Cruz says, and they can't under Obamacare. Sanders says, second of all, yes, some people have problems. I'm not arguing with that at all, Ted. He says, but don't argue with me when I tell you that 20 million more people did get health insurance. Now, notice he says insurance because insurance doesn't necessarily mean care. 
And that's an end quote from Sanders. So this was the crux of the debate. That was the only discussion of the so-called right to health care that they actually had. And I ask you the question, who did better in that exchange? Uh, would Cruz, you know, talking about having a right to access to health care, would he have convinced anyone who, before watching that debate, thought that being given health care is a right? You know, what, what, you know, why didn't he do what I would say so many of us who know Rand's view, why didn't he spell out what I think he probably meant by access but didn't say, implicitly he at least I think probably meant this, that a right is a right to action, not to be given something free of charge. Um, yeah, it's true. The Constitution only talks about rights in terms of government not infringing them the job of the Constitution. But if you want to talk about what substantively a right is on the moral issue, you can't just talk about the Constitution and about the government leaving you alone and not infringing your right. You also want to talk about whether there is a moral right to this thing. And so I was disappointed. I wonder why he did not do that. He, he certainly read enough Rand, I would think. He was the one, of course, who read Rand on the Senate floor during the Obamacare filibuster that he did back in 2013. Now, importantly, he didn't address that issue then, you know, of, of what a right is and it's a right to action, et cetera. But I found it disappointing. Like I said, that little mini transcript, you can find it. I've got it on my public uh, postings on Facebook. So if you want to come over there and, and check it out, there's a whole bunch of comments that people have left about it saying, yeah, this, this was very much a missed opportunity. For whatever reason, Cruz chose not to address this issue until an hour into the debate when he was cornered by Sanders. And then even when he did it, he uses this word access, which is not clear enough, I think, to make the fundamental point that needs to be made, that rights are rights to action, that you have a freedom of action to go out there and earn money and purchase health care and not be restricted in the way that you purchase either health insurance or health care by government. As it stands right now, Obamacare is the latest huge layer. Um, you know, it's the latest huge layer of regulation on the health care industry. And what it has had the effect of doing is making health insurance, true insurance for health care, perfectly illegal. What you purchase right now under the title of health insurance is some amalgamation of really poor insurance because, you know, these super high deductibles for a very high price, um, not very good care, you know, very few choices in that insurance. So there's some insurance component, but there's a huge, what you would call prepaid health care component where you're prepaying for all sorts of preventative and other services that you may or may not avail yourself of, right? So, you know, men, for example, are out there paying for maternity services when they're never going to use it, all that sorts of stuff. So that's what you have right now. Government is preventing you from gaining access, right, from acting to purchase health insurance and health care. Government should not be doing that. At the same time, nobody has a duty to provide you with either health insurance or, or health care. Um, 
if they did, then basically they would be your slaves. They are working for whatever amount of time it would take to pay for those health care services for you or pay for that health insurance. Um, how could that be a right? There is a talk that was given so many years ago. And it was actually the first time that I ever saw Leonard Peikoff give a speech in person. And it was health care is not a right. He gave it for an organization called Americans for Free Choice in Medicine, and that was in 1993. And he talks about the fact that, you know, what is healthcare? It's this very advanced technological service, requires a coordination of, you know, services and products of all these different people that require a lot, you know, reason and a lot of technical knowledge. And then suddenly you're born with a right to be provided with this thing. It did. It seems to make absolutely no sense. And he also talks in there, uh, as I recall, about, you know, what would happen if you had a right to care from a barber? You know, what would that look like? And what is the services, you know, what are the services going to become? You know, doctors today, what is health care inequality like, given that there's more and more controls on the doctors? Um, in any event, I found the, you know, the addressing of that issue of whether health care is a right to be inadequate um, Cruz was good on a lot of things, right? Um, he was excellent at telling you all the horrible things that happened under Obamacare. He was pretty good at proposing some, you know, so-called free market alternatives, things that could go out there and, and help the market for health insurance and health care right away, allowing people to purchase insurance across state lines uh, is, is a big one. Um, but, you know, one thing that he did mention and he, you know, it, it's interesting because he, he does weasel as a politician. The, the question that came right at the very beginning was the one about pre-existing conditions. And there was a woman right there in the audience who had been diagnosed something like nine months ago with breast cancer. And she's concerned that if the Republicans repeal and replace Obamacare, that she's not going to get the treatment that she needs her plan is going to get canceled, she'll get kicked off it, whatever. And there's Cruz assuring her that, I think he said virtually all, that was the type of language he used, that virtually all of the plans, the replacement plans that are being proposed by Republicans still contain a mandate that insurance companies provide coverage for pre-existing conditions, that they cannot deny coverage, and moreover, that there's some sort of price control on the premiums in addition to that. So I asked Cruz, you know, no wonder he doesn't want to be pressed on the fundamental issue because he is implicitly at least talking up the idea of a replacement plan that includes a mandate that insurance companies cover pre-existing conditions. And what I wonder is, is it possible for the Republicans to provide something that is actually better, that still covers, you know, that, you know, mandates the coverage of, of pre-existing conditions? Isn't that going to make prices skyrocket? Isn't that why we have the Obamacare mandate, you know, the mandate that you buy insurance and all of these other things that they pack into so-called insurance right now, uh, basically they're getting a whole bunch of us to prepay in a huge way for healthcare, forcing us into that market, and that helps pick up the slack 
for the insurance companies to cover pre-existing conditions and other things. So I didn't like that from him. But in terms of statistics about the carnage wrought by Obamacare, he was excellent. He was also excellent on the effects of instituting a system of socialized medicine around the world. He gave you some examples of you know, horrific stories of what happened to people in the UK when they're waiting for crucial healthcare treatments. Um, there was a hospital in Scotland that had to actually turn away two women in labor, would not treat them because they just didn't have room. This is just some of the effects of, of socialized medicine. So he was great about that, you know, about how socialized medicine destroys the quality of care so that everybody has been coming here and we don't want to destroy our system. But again, he had that golden opportunity to address the fundamental issue and really nail it. I mean, Sanders did not provide a defense for health care as a right other than what I told you, those appeals to authority. But he posed the issue in a fundamental way really starkly in such a way that Cruz was smart enough, I think, had enough knowledge to be able to address it, to think that he didn't know it was going to come up, right? He, he should have done that. He definitely should have done that. Um, but as I said, I, I found that disappointing. Uh, Rob says, there is no such thing as a right to, quote, access to someone else's property. Yeah. We have to demolish the egalitarian premises at the root of the concept access. Yeah, you know, what we need to do is address that Rawlsian argument that, you know, the proper rules for society are those, and, it, you know, people who've read Rawls will understand what I'm talking about. I'm just going to give the jargon for a second. But Rawls has this thing called the veil of ignorance and you're supposed to choose the rules that you would want to have govern society from behind the veil of ignorance. You don't know what your particular characteristics, qualifications, skills, uh, disabilities, or lack thereof, attractiveness, whatever. You don't know any of these things in advance, and you're supposed to decide what you think you know, the rules are that should govern society. And he thinks that you would agree to a scheme of redistribution, any rational person he thinks would agree to a scheme of redistribution such that you keep redistributing wealth until you can no longer make the least well-off person any better off by further redistributions of wealth. Um, and, you know, how does he justify this? That all those characteristics of yours that you're born with and even the parents you were born to, the opportunities you were given because of the parents you were born to, all of this stuff, you did nothing to deserve it. There's nothing you did to deserve it. And so you should, you know, feel like, yeah, I want to go ahead and abstract away from that when I'm deciding what the rules are that should govern society. And that's why we should go ahead and redistribute the way I'm suggesting, he says. Um, how do you answer him? You're, you're going to say, okay, well, you didn't, quote, do anything to deserve it, but the mere fact that you didn't, doesn't mean that that creates a moral duty for others to make up for the fact that you were either born a certain way or to certain parents and everything else. That is a fact of nature. And, you know, we're all born differently. That's a fact of nature. Does that in and of itself create a moral obligation on other human beings? No, not by itself. You need to give further arguments. People are born with different characteristics and abilities and attributes and everything else. Um, and, 
you know, what he wants to do is go straight from that is to the ought that other human beings have a duty to make up for the fact that you weren't born with what they were born with. And that's not been established. That's what needs to be pressed hard. And I'm sure that that's what's pressed in um, equal is unfair. That's you just, you just can't do that. There's no moral duty, um, you know, to, to make up for those inequalities that are, that are natural out there. Uh, Did I expect Cruz to do that last night? No. But I did expect him to talk about what a right is in more fundamental terms, that a right is a right to action. And what he ended up doing instead was he gave very compelling arguments about how Obamacare has destroyed our lives in America in the short time that it's been around, how socialized medicine has destroyed the quality of medicine in every country where they have it around the world. He's given that argument. And he's also talked about the idea that, you know, the choice is between the government controlling your health care and individuals controlling your decisions about the purchase of your health insurance and your health care and et cetera. So he's good about the effects. He's good about talking about the issue of control, you having control over this. And like I said, he brought in the issue of access. But if he really nailed that issue of what a right was, I think he could have convinced more people than he did. Maybe he did convince some people. Maybe he did. But the ability to convince someone who truly believes that they have a right to this thing that everyone crucially needs. I mean, even, you know, he talked about it, Cruz. He says, healthcare is so personal, it can sometimes affect whether you live or die. You know, so he's really talking about how we have, we do, we have a need for health care in certain circumstances. And yet to not talk about why that need doesn't give rise to a right, you know, to not take that opportunity, this platform that CNN gives them and do it is another thing. Now, um, I was critical because he didn't address the issue until about an hour in the debate. I'm not sure necessarily. Maybe he didn't want to hit the fundamental issue of rights right away. Maybe someone who was really good at debating techniques would have started out at the concrete level and then gotten to that level of rights later. But it seemed to me like he was avoiding that issue and that he addressed it squarely as he did only when cornered by Sanders. And like I said, I found that disappointed disappointing um yeah so the little rawls yeah the the uh, people like my little tangent on rawls well i'm glad if that's if that's helpful um i studied some rawls here and there and and he really seems to be the one who's got to be answered utilitarianism there's various ways that i think you can address and answer that but um it's the other now i see getting some notifications here that people are discussing on my thread on Facebook. And I don't know if I'm going to be able to keep up with that while we go on with the show. I might check it out here for a second. Let me see how I'm doing on my program notes. As I said, go to the blog, don'tletitgo.com for program notes if you want. Yeah, let me let me go ahead. I can take some time to go over to the, the Facebook thread where they're talking about crews. I'm wondering if any of the people over on the thread are – actually listening to the show or not. Um, A lot of people commenting. Uh, Dennis says, the altruist narratives that dominate our culture typically view the need for anything as a right. 
He says, most political leaders, including Ted Cruz, have a lot of difficulty addressing this issue because they generally buy into the altruist narrative, even if only inconsistently. Yes. And then uh, Tony chimes in, probably so as a devout Christian, it is as far as he's willing to go. And Mark chimes in and, and agrees there. Tony says about this failure of Cruz to address the issue squarely. He says, depressing. He has more guts than any of the other politicians. In the end, he shoots himself in the foot with passivity and evasion. David says, maybe this isn't the debate we deserved. Yeah, well, I think it's it's close to the debate that we deserve. To, and when did we deserve to have this debate? During the actual presidential election. It would have been nice to see Cruz face off with Sanders on all sorts of issues. Ed Maslish is pleased with how Cruz performed. Um, yeah, and, and he says he wasn't being Christian, he was being political. But I do, I think I think he could have addressed it more squarely. Uh, Benjamin agrees with me, you're right, a missed opportunity. What's a better moment to ask, her right or the duty of others to provide for her? And the her being the um, LaRonda, who was the small business owner that they were addressing there. Yeah. Is it is it her right or do other people need to provide for her? Walter, who I know was a Cruz supporter during the election, he says, I agree this was an enormous missed opportunity. He should have said that a right is an entitlement, an entitlement to acting constructively on your own behalf as long as you do not trample the same entitlement accorded to others. Huge miss. He says, I have messaged Ted's people about this already. Well, that would be great if he got a message. I tweeted. I tweeted him out there. I guess I should have put the little tweet in the program notes. Sometimes I ask you guys if you're in the program notes and you're on Twitter to go ahead and retweet. But I did tweet him earlier. Uh, Gordon says, this isn't going to hit home with anyone watching this debate who supports Sanders, I don't expect. How do we each come to know what government's role is? Some of us went to school, took a government class. He says, I think most people breeze by this topic in school. So then they get out into the workplace and what now? All they hear is their coworkers uh, bitching about the government not doing what it should. Literally everyone in, in their lives are saying the same thing. Basically, the government is our mother and should take care of our needs. And then half the politicians are trying to get their votes by stating the same nonsense, regardless of whether it's correct or not. He says it works, and that's what counts in politics. It's never going to sink in what Rand Paul's been explaining as a doctor, that people are demanding his labor, not until the sky crashes down and they run out of producers to mooch from, that or we begin to demand the right to, quote, their labors. Then they think, WTF, no way, man. <laughs> um, we hope so. Right. We hope so. What Rand dramatized in Atlas Shrugged is that not everybody says that some people try to actually live under that sort of system, under that type of demand. Uh, Brian says, I don't mind having a right to access health insurance, but I do mind being penalized for not using that right. Now, you know, again, we have to be clear about what the word access means. Access is a wiggle word. Obama used it and now Cruz used it. Like I said, disappointing to use that word access. Why not just say that you have a right to purchase health insurance if there is a health insurance company willing to sell it to you at the price that you're willing to pay? And that's it. 
And people just aren't able to say that today. And I think that is going to hinder any efforts to so-called repeal and replace Obamacare. Let me zoom over, and I'm actually going to turn off the Facebook because I get a little dinging notification sound when when people comment. I'm going to see if I've got someone on the on hold. Yeah, I do. I've got someone on hold who wants to talk. Hi, you're on the air. Who's this? Hi, Amy. It's Debbie. Oh, hey, Debbie. Yay. Hi. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. I'm, like I said, disappointed in Cruz for the reason I stayed. Am I overreacting? Am I expecting too much? Well, you know, um, I got pretty excited at first when you were going over his response to the question of health care being a right. Because mm-hmm. it sounded like where he was going is, yeah, it's a right in the same sense that speech is a right, that you have the the right to seek, you, you know, to seek your own health care in, in whatever way you think is appropriate. And I like that because it's a positive formulation, but then he didn't really quite go there and he sort of went with that slippery term of access, which could easily be interpreted to mean provided by that, that, that uh, the health care be provided by someone. I mean, what does it mean that you have access? And then Bernie Sanders, of course, jumped on that by saying, yeah, you can get access to, Donald Trump's mansion, if you can afford it, like mm-hmm. the access million dollars or whatever the actual to take possession of something is to have access of it, to be able to get it, whether regardless of what your your means are of getting it. So that was very disappointing, I think. And another thing is that Bernie Sanders, uh, I've never heard an advocate of the idea that healthcare is a right. I've never heard anyone really brazenly get out there and say, and that means that you have the right to force people to provide it. Yeah, you, you know, know the, they he, always he got oh. he got somewhat close. He got somewhat close because when they're talking to this, um, you know, LaRonda, who what she's this woman from Texas and has the five healthcare salons, and she you know doesn't she won't hire more than 48 people or, you know, wherever she's right under 50, because if she hits 50, then boom, this mandate kicks in and and she can go bankrupt. And Sanders says, well, I'm going to tell you something you don't like. And he was saying essentially that a business owner who employs 50 or more people has a duty to provide health insurance to the employees. And it's unfair because then there's these other, you know, people who have 50 or more employees and they're, you know, essentially shouldering a burden that you should be shouldering as well. And so you're able to offer cheaper haircutting services and get more business from these other people because they're actually doing their moral duty, uh, their patriotic duty, because everybody has a right as an American citizen, just in virtue of being an American citizen to healthcare, right? And so the other businesses are stepping up and performing their patriotic duty. And here you are, you selfish business owner. So that was interesting. And, but he you know, still got, wasn't it, going, he wasn't using the language of force, though. He was using the no. language of moral obligation. And that's yes. the thing that Ted Cruz could have really exploited. Because, yeah. like, I mean, it, it's really universal. I've never heard anyone this side of Stalin say, you know, just brazenly say, yeah, we're going to force you to do this thing. And like you had that caller a while back who was really pretty fierce advocate of, of, 
government or socialized medicine and of Obamacare, but he couldn't, when you pinned him down on it, he just couldn't quite get there and say, yeah, force people to do it. And, and so I, I was really disappointed that Cruz didn't see that opportunity there and um, that he didn't make his point more forcefully, which I thought was beautiful that health, this, this idea, it was just perfect that healthcare, yeah, it's a right same way speaking is a right and you know moving around is a right and associating with people is a right it's true um that would have been great and then if he had he'd gone on to make the connection with force then i think he could have done really well there maybe maybe that just hasn't quite occurred to him this connection of of government providing things for people it's possible i you know i really wish he would talk to me i mean i would love to talk to him about that issue. Of course, I really want to talk to him about privacy. I've been wanting to talk to him about privacy forever because I think he gets some of that wrong too. Um, you know, he is a politician. He's been in that world for so long. But I could tell in watching him when he was pressed on this issue of the pre-existing conditions that he himself wouldn't necessarily support a replacement plan that included the mandate to cover pre-existing conditions. Uh, He was saying, well, you know, virtually all of the GOP replacement plans that have been put forward include that mandate. So you're going to be fine, which is a prediction, not an endorsement. Right. So he's making that prediction that there's going to be an inclusion of, of the mandate. But I think he knows like you and I would know Debbie that, if it includes that mandate to cover pre-existing conditions, it's not going to be a real solution. And in fact, probably the problem is going to get worse than it already is. I'm guessing. Yeah. It's see, this create, this is a really tricky situation because the whole problem about pre-existing conditions has come about because of the fact that people are constantly having to switch plans. If you just right. got one plan at the age of 20 or something like that, um, and then kept it for the rest of your life. Any health problems that came up, you know, they wouldn't be pre-existing. But if she's constantly getting switched around and and uh, there's not a contract in place, there's not a market where where the, that there would be demand for these like sort of long-term contracts that says, yeah, you can't drop me if I get sick. And if people kind of had these healthcare insurance in the same way that they have maybe auto insurance or life insurance, that it just stays with them. But now we've got the situation where there are people like that who are in danger if the laws change. And she, you know, presumably through no fault of her own. And I really, I'm not sure what the answer to that is. It, it seems like no matter what you do. um, Well, I mean, you know, the, the answer is to get rid of the tie of health insurance to employers because it was that tie. And then in conjunction with that, the ability of these contracts to be broken, uh, gotten out of whenever you switch employers. Right. So right. That yeah, that's the long-term solution. But when someone's already in the situation where they're imminently going to lose their health insurance and now they have breast cancer, so, so now, like, there's this sort of immediate problem. There's, like, the long-term solution. That, that, that I understand. But, but what about these people who are all going to be thrown into this position in the interim, like, during the transition? I think that, that's something that concerns me a little bit, yeah, like, how I mean, to work that transition. 
Right, right. We could, you and I could agree on the principle that it would likely be immoral to just drop all regulation on the health insurance industry tomorrow and let everybody just, you know, lose coverage and all this stuff, right? People like this woman that they started out with who has an existing, you know, cancer treatment going on for, for breast cancer. Um, you're just going to leave them? No, you're not going to leave them in the lurch. Just like if you're going to get rid of, you know, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, you're going to have to phase these out and privatize them in some way that seems fair, given that a whole bunch of people have been paying into them, relying upon them and all this. It's not necessarily their fault that those programs exist and that they're in that bind through no fault of their own. So then the question is, you know, how much and what and specifics, it gets really tricky, right? And who's paying for that yes. in the meantime? And we know that it's an immoral thing to make other people pay for that, but it's going to have to be. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just like, the, but that's more of a tactical uh, or strategic question than a principle. I mean, cause we all know what the ideal, well, we don't all know, unfortunately you and I know what the ideal solution looks like in the long term. And, but but actually working out the transition so that innocent people are not don't have their lives crushed that that's another that's a much trickier thing. I mean I think there there must be a solution to it, but yeah. um, it's not really necessarily an easy one. No. Now on the on the topic of access, the use of the term access by Ted Cruz, Tim in the chat room's got a, a good comment. He says I want access to Bernie's <clears throat> bank account. Yeah, I would like access to Bernie's <laughs> bank account as well. I would like access to Bernie's bank account just to pay my health insurance premiums. Or how about yeah. even just how about just, you know, access to Bernie's bank account just to pay the increase in my health insurance premiums due to Obamacare. Let's just be really fair about it. If I could have that, I'd be pretty happy. That would be really nice. Uh Robert in the and chat how room about says access- Oh, oh, sorry. Yeah. Oh, no, go ahead. Finish on access because then I've got a different point that I'm going to get with Robert here. Go ahead. How about access to experimental drugs that are not yet approved by the FDA when you're in a dire situation? Now, when this you're, is when something, you're, yeah. Cruz, you know, and this was another thing in which Cruz was good. Cruz was trying to name issues on which he and Bernie could, quote, you know, work across the aisle And so one thing that he suggested is to allow people to purchase cheaper prescription drugs from Mexico or Canada or whatever. I think they call that re-importation because what these drug companies are doing is they're doing something that I learned about in economics so long ago in college. I think they used to call it riding the demand curve. So there's this demand curve, you know, there's X number of people who would be willing to pay a certain amount for your good or service. And then there's, you know, another number of people that would be willing to pay, you know, a bit less than that or more. And the question is, can you really milk that whole demand curve so that you can force the people who are willing to pay more to pay more? And then the people who are not willing to pay as much, you can allow them to pay as much as they're willing to pay while not losing the increased revenues from up the demand curve and so on, right? Because obviously well, it's true that... that's not what I mean. Well, no, 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 but, but what, I, what, what I'm... No, 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 I know, I know. This is, this is, no, but this is just the first of the two things that they agreed on. Sorry, I'm being a little long. This is 
is the first of two things they agreed on. The first thing they agreed upon is that insofar as drug companies have been making drugs cheaper to people in Canada, and that creates an opportunity for us to go ahead and just buy ours from Canada and then have it mailed to us here. I think both Sanders and Cruz decided they could agree on that, right? And then San- I don't know that Sanders actually agreed to what you're talking about and what Cruz was also trying to get him to agree to, which is that it is just immoral for the FDA to withhold approval for potentially life-saving drugs from these people who are, for example, terminally ill. And he, uh, Cruz explicitly mentioned right to try, which is the phrase that people like at the Goldwater Institute and stuff have been using for a you know specific legislative proposal that would give people a right to try these potentially life-saving drugs. And Cruz also talked about a, you know, an accelerated approval, uh, you know, timeline of the FDA as well. He cited a really disturbing statistic. And like I said, Cruz was excellent on statistics. He was great. Um, One statistic was that in the last 20 years, the FDA has approved only three child, you know, drugs for treating pediatric cancer. Mm-hmm. That's that's yeah, just it, sad. Three in twenty years. That's how slow the FDA is. It, it's very slow. I mean, it's it's like basically a, a ten or twenty year process. But I mean, I would actually go further than that. I wouldn't even limit it to people who are dying. I would say anyone should be able to take any drug that a company is willing to sell them, and then make the FDA approval something more like okay, well, if it's not yet been fully through the review process, then there's more risk maybe, or there's less, or it's not as fully proven that it, that it has efficacy. But, like, even for people who are not dying, like, it's their, my body, my choice, right? I mean. Right. No, it, I, it, 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 it should be. It should be. It should be. I you know how these politicians. To have an, it would make sense to have an agency, not a government force agency but just some kind of professional society to go through these review processes we have something analogous in appliances like the um ul lab and there's some some different labs good housekeeping once you get their you get their stamp of approval they do all this rigorous testing for for appliances and then once you get their stamp of approval then then that shows that your your appliances are of a certain quality and of a certain safety standard and whatnot and right. um so people want to get that and there would be a lot of value added in in a in an agency that, per, that performed a function that's similar to the fda but without the force backing it up yeah so, i mean exactly. that, that's what i would do but at yep. the very least when people are dying let them take any goddamn drug they want to you, you know yes. to try and save their own lives no so, doubt no doubt um, and it's 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 terrible um i have a friend who has been ill and is having to petition for special approval from FDA uh, for something. And, you know, the idea that somebody has to, you know, go begging and ask permission to be able to take a drug that could vastly improve their quality of life, you know, potentially in case of some people, quantity of life, it is um, ridiculous. So, so just to sum up, and I was going to see Debbie, is there a way I can keep you on for the next topic? Because there's, the little thing of the amygdala and what you and I have learned and talked about a little bit in the past. We've talked about lizard brain before, right? Yeah. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Can you stay on for that? Okay. So let me just kind of sum up for some people who've just kind of tuned in in the middle and stuff. 
Overall, I thought Cruz did excellent on some things. The things that he did really well on were on citing all the specific statistics about the damage that Obamacare has wrought. He also has a lot of data about how terrible socialized medicine is in terms of destroying quality and quantity of health care anywhere that it's been tried. He was excellent, I thought, at trying to find places where he and Bernie Sanders could agree that could make some improvements in the market for health care, right? You know, very specific isolated things like we were just talking about, FDA, drug-related. And then um, finally, I thought he was good in terms of saying, do you want government to have control over this thing or do you, the individual, want to have control over it? So government versus individual. But as I said, I was very disappointed in his treatment of the issue of whether health care is a right the fact that he used that wiggle word access cost him a lot of clarity and, and persuasiveness. And then also the fact that he was resorting to the Constitution, where the Constitution is really just a limit on government. And what Sanders is talking about is a right to have your fellow man provide you with health care. Granted, Sanders did not give a good argument as to why we supposedly have a right to health care. He resorted to logical fallacies, but Cruz failed to squarely address the issue in a way that I thought was effective. So that's kind of my take. Did you end up watching the whole debate or no? No, I'm planning to, um, but I haven't seen it yet. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead and check it out. I've still got that second hour, but my guess is that the second hour is going to be filled with crews being masterful in the ways that I just described, but not getting any further on the fundamental issue. My sister told me that really that was the one place that, that he did it, you know, she says, because I, I was, I was impatient, you know, the idea that it was raised at the very outset of the debate, and that it was raised again, 23 minutes in, and he hadn't gotten to it, he hadn't addressed it, I, I was disappointed, she says, just wait, just wait, he's going to talk about you have a right to access, but not to health care. Okay, okay, I'm waiting. And yeah, it was, it was, it was disappointing. Um, over here in the chat room. Oh, one other thing. So Robert says, yeah, this is a tough nut to crack. He says, you need to make two points simultaneously. First, healthcare is not a right. And then second, treating it as a right doesn't make it a right and doesn't work. It does more harm than good. And what happens is, you know, Cruz was making that second point masterfully, but he wasn't really addressing the first. Um, so disappointed on that ground. The, the, so the other topic I have is this funny thing that I'm calling Trump brain. And I think, Debbie, aren't you one of those people who's fairly blissfully ignorant of social media? Yeah, I would say that's true. Mm -hmm. I hear about it every once in a while, but as far as being active on social media, other than LinkedIn, not really. Yeah, so I had this debate scheduled for Friday, and I went ahead and put the link in the program notes. So people, again, go to the blog, don'tletitgo.com, you can see in the program notes, I've got this link. And the debate was going to be between Lindsay Perigo, who's the founder and chief curator and everything over at Solo Passion, a website out of New Zealand where they discuss all sorts of ideas related to objectivism, applications of objectivism in Lindsay's sort of unique style. Um, And then he was going to be talking with your own Brooke. We're going to have the debate. And I was actually going to have a formal debate, you know, formatted. They were going to need to start out with three minute opening statements. And I was going to take it from there. And 
you know, we have been scheduling this for months because it took months to find the time that both of them could both come on the show at the same time. I was excited about it because Lindsay's been quite critical of your own and, you know, ARI's policy oh. and stuff on this. And, um, you know, at the same time, what I was trying to do also is get some ground rules for a productive discussion. So Lindsay uses some colorful language to refer to ARI over at his blog. And at the very outset, I said, you can't oh. use that language. I said, you can't be rude, you know, and Lindsay's done a lot of debates in a very professional way. So I was confident he'd be able to do it. He actually teaches elocution and he, he's quite talented. He can be quite talented. So, you know, I'm optimistic he's going to do this. In fact, when I announced that he was going to be the one who was going to take on your own, some people were disappointed. They had wanted other people, I guess, who would you know, be harder hitting, they think, or something. I don't know, whatever. Um, but I thought Lindsay, you know, he's been talking about the Trump and immigration and stuff for a long time. It'd be good to have these two have kind of a, a meeting of the minds on my show. So all scheduled and everything. And then I'm trying to nail down, you know, the actual topics that we're going to discover for your own or discovered, discussed for Euron, because Euron's really busy, and he says, what are we talking about, immigration, Trump, what, you know, so I go, and, uh, you know, I'm back and forth with Lindsay, and Lindsay tells me, you know, okay, I want to talk about Trump, and of course, that's immigration, and the wall, and Islam, uh, free speech, because of all the events recently at Berkeley and stuff, there's a, a lot to talk about there, uh, and also some economic policy. So he says, okay, I want to talk about these things. So I go back to your own. Is it okay? All these things. And your own says, yeah. So I think we're on. And then middle of Super Bowl Sunday, I get this email from Lindsay saying, well, he's decided that he cannot adhere to my no rudeness criteria. But in particular, because I, I, I had further elaborated on the no rudeness criteria uh, in a way that was prompted by a comment that someone named Ed made on my wall on, on Facebook. Um, and he had made this kind of sweeping criticism of your own that I thought was rude and unwarranted. You know, go ahead and disagree on some particular position that your own takes, but I don't need this kind of sweeping condemnation stuff, this language. So when I said to Lindsay, I said, Lindsay, the no rudeness is, includes this type of comment, you know, Ed made this comment the other day and, you know, th this is not something that I want during the debate, but otherwise, you know, all the policies and everything else talk about it. That's no problem. But he decided that he was so upset, so angry that he couldn't adhere to my criteria, my no rudeness rules. And again, those included a terminology that he likes to use over on his blog that I thought was rude and unproductive. And then also, again, this idea that I'm not going to allow some sort of a sweeping condemnatory generalization. I, I want, mm -hmm. you know, like your, your own is a horrible cook. I don't want something like that. Okay. Um, what I want is. Well, this I don't know if that would be that big of a problem. Well, no, <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just giving cook. an example. <laughs> I'm just giving. Oh, Oh, this is this is so funny. Um, Stuart, Stuart in the chat room is. Are you okay? Yeah. You okay yeah, there? Fine. Okay, good. Um, I'm fine. I'm fine. So, um, so anyway, the point is, is that Lindsay said he was withdrawing because he's just he was simply too mad, and he couldn't promise to adhere to my rule. 
So apparently now over on Solo Passion, Stewart is telling me that Lindsay Perigo has posted about this and that the people there wrote really delusional posts saying that, quote, Amy Peacock and Jerome Brook pussied out and they are too scared to debate Linz, end quote. Um, <laughs> yeah. The no That's rudeness so rule funny. apparently triggered Lindsay Perigo. Um, now, I, I guess it was other people who were saying that. I mean, Lindsay knows. He wrote me withdrawing. Um, and that's fine if he says that he is unable to adhere to that. And then he went ahead and he made his own uninterrupted written statement that he posted. And people can read his statement if they want. What I'm going to do, you know, again, this is my show. These are my rules. I was providing a forum for this discussion to take place. I thought it would have been a productive discussion. And I think that my, my rules were reasonable. Some people disagree about whether my rules were reasonable. Uh, if, you are, if you disagree about whether you think my rules are reasonable, I would encourage you to read the entire thread, which is on my Facebook wall. Uh, James Valiant does a great job talking about the substance of this rule and how it would apply. What is this sweeping condemnatory generalization that I, you know, I'm concerned with? I did give the example, the specific example to Lindsay. This is what I mean. So it was, it's clear enough. I think it was easy enough for Lindsay, a professional speaker, to avoid that if he wanted to. So given that that happens, that, that someone who is intelligent and a professional speaker and also a longtime objectivist, student of objectivism, whatever people want to go ahead and call him, I'm not going to say what he is or isn't. It's not my you know, I don't know the whole constellation of his views to say one way or the other, but we have seen, this is just, you know, one example. We've seen within objectivism, a number of people who are getting super passionate around the issue of Trump and immigration, such that they're finding it difficult or impossible to remain civil. So, like I said, you know, this friend of mine, Ed posts this thing on my wall and I call him out and I say, you can't do that, you know? And he apologizes and everything, but imagine, you know, smart people um, supposedly applying the same philosophy, taking different views and being so upset about it that they can't control themselves to, you know, I think reasonable rules of civil discussion. It's really too bad. I had looked forward to providing this forum, but it's something that I see more broadly. And that's where I got my title for today. You know, I say is Trump care going to cover the effects of, of Trump brain. There seems to be this thing called Trump brain where the phenomenon of Trump is getting some people on both sides of the debate, you know, kind of really flustered and upset and they seem to be unable to control themselves in reasonable discussion. Um, now, mind you, again, this is where I'm saying I'm taking a whole bunch of psychological license here. Usually I don't want to psychologize, but I'm seeing this phenomenon of people who are unable to control rude behavior. And I'm assuming that it is, and you know, this is me, you know, being very understanding about this. Our world, our country in particular, is in a bad way. And some people see Trump as the solution to a wide variety of urgent problems, and some people see Trump as the next step toward dictatorship. And both of those, you know, whichever one you happen to hold, and if you really hold it strongly and you believe it, that's by either of those can be really alarming and it could be very difficult. I mean, if you think, okay, we're going towards the end of the world, 
And if you think the other side, whatever position they hold, they're the ones who, you know, they're helping to push us toward the end of the world, towards catastrophe, you could get very passionate about it. But we're certainly not going to have a productive discussion if, you know, it's going to be based on rudeness that comes out. So this is where the idea of the so-called lizard brain comes in. What do you know about lizard brain and kind of people acting out of emotions in situations like this where they have, I would say, warranted, very warranted fear about all the horrible stuff going on in the world? You referenced the, the amygdala. I know that's the part of the brain that responds to threats and mm-hmm. is responsible for emotions of fear and um, the so-called fight-or-flight response, that kind of thing. Um, if that's what you're getting at, I don't really know. I mean, I don't think there's, like, a class of people who are just, I, I mean, I don't know if I'll classify people that way, like, as this is a lizard brain person type of thing. Um, I think that it's one of those no, things where no. you over gradually over time you may allow yourself to be driven more by the fear and negative emotions and then you'll you know kind of have a higher you'll be more likely to give into them in the future and there's a sort of dynamic that can emerge there like a, a feedback loop type of thing um, because fear causes the um, release of stress hormones which can kill neurons in the hippocampus and um, can can do damage to the other, you know, the healthier parts of your brain. So you will kind of reshape your brain in a way that is not healthy and makes it harder for you to kind of get back to a normal state. Um, right. I think that's a real thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, but, and uh, I, um, I was going to say, some people were speculating that insofar as Trump seems to stoke Fear and in a way, he seems to sort of be operating out of that sort of impulse himself sometimes, you know, when he's tweeting the way that he does and some of the comments he makes, you know, everything's a disaster. Uh, you know, all through the debates, we kept hearing about everything was a disaster and horrible and everything that he himself is responsible for, for stirring some of it up. Um, you know, but as I said, well, let me add one other piece. As objectivists, we are, I I would say, acutely able to perceive the dangers either by the Trump or the anti-Trump, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And and, and there are some dangers on both sides. It's really hard to know exactly what the right way to go, I think, in this last election was. Um, But, you know, there are some real risks that are posed by Trump, and at the same time, there are some things that are real threats that he has a potential to address in a way that can help our country. Both of those things are true. And I can see people getting very emotional about them one way or the other, but to the extent that getting emotional about it has prevented people having civilized debate and that we can't even have... Yeah, that's the thing that's that's just really gotten to me this last week, and then people have been insulting me and everything else. Um, and and now claiming you were afraid, you and your own were afraid of this debate. That's ridiculous. And 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 no. I mean, if anything, I would think that this guy was probably intimidated to debate your own. 
I mean, if I were going to debate your own, I would ha- I wouldn't do it unless I were really damn sure that I was the one that was right and that I could clearly articulate the reason because he's such a powerful speaker and he's so good at it and so knowledgeable and persuasive uh that like I would expect him to just demolish me in a debate <laughs> unless I were really, really well prepared. And I would expect that other people would get that uh, notion as well, just because he's so capable. Um, but just to think that your own is so such a terrible person that you can't even be civil, that he's the threat? Like, yes. Your own, your own, your own views, your own views are such a threat. His, the content on a particular show was so bad that he said, I, I'm not going to be able to adhere to the rule. And he, he said he was just going to put out his own written statement instead. And he has, and he actually ended up coming on my thread on Facebook, you know, the post, and he put the link there and I went ahead and left the link there. You can go see for yourself what it was that he thought he wanted to say. And then you can decide for yourself whether I should have let him say it on my show. You know, again, this is my show. I'm providing a forum. I had a reasonable rule that would have allowed him to say the substance of his points. I think many people disagree, but, but that's their uh, prerogative. Um, I've seen leftists debate your own, like hardcore leftists, and they were able to remain civil in the debate. And those are people who have serious ideological Right, again, again, though. But, you know, no, but to me that's not comparable. You know, I want to reiterate the sympathy that I have for perceiving how bad a way things are. You know, things are really in a bad way right now on so many fronts. And I see that. And some people, of course, experience the things that are going badly uh, in connection with their lives, you know, much more acutely, or maybe they watch certain coverage of all the rapes and the horribleness that's going on in Germany. There's, you know, there are some real problems there. Turns out that these problems are ending up highlighting a difference of opinion about, you know, really what the nature of a government is and what a government's proper proper role is with respect to immigration policy. This is something that really needs to be ironed out in a certain way. It's been highlighted. But I I'm sympathetic with the pro Trump and the anti Trump. Now I'm I'm neither way. And then the question is, you know, how is it that I because I feel I have been polite, whatever view that I've ever expressed, I don't think I've ever expressed it in some sort of a rude way. I don't do the sweeping condemnations and everything else. Why is it that way? Um, you know, is it because, for example, I had insane traumatic childhood and all sorts of bumps in my life? So it's like I'm immune to the coming disaster in a certain way. It's like I've I survived my childhood by thinking really clearly in really crappy situations. And so here I am. I just, you know, continue to try to think as clearly as I can through not only the political stuff, but all sorts of, you know, personal stuff that I confront all the time. Maybe that's me. Now, is that, you know, the best way to be? Not necessarily. I hope to do a show, you know, uh, one day on um, uh, addiction. Uh, And I had a mother who was uh, addicted to alcohol, and that caused a bunch of problems. And, And talk about, you know, kind of the ramifications of this stuff. It's not necessarily good. I'm just saying, why is it, you know, for for me, I just feel like I I have this ability to not get that 
passionate one way or the other? Is it because I truly just intellectually don't see that one way is that much better than the other? Like I have an actual different intellectual position or is it something in my psychology? Again, I'm just speculating. I'm not a psychologist. This is, this is the free for all artistic license, psychological license, all in this part of the, the show. But in general, my only message is I think it's a shame that we couldn't have this debate between two people because one side got emotional. Now on the other side, you know, and I'll, I'll be hasty to add too, there has on the other side been some unwarranted name calling with respect to xenophobia um, and racism. There is some racism and xenophobia mm. among some Trump supporters. And I've had people actually post racist comments at my blog and I've had to delete them and all this whatever stuff, but not everybody who has been called a xenophobe and a racist is necessarily a xenophobe and a racist. There are people who have um, real concerns about the state that the world's in and they have a certain position that they think that, you know, what they believe the role of government is that is, is different. And they think that if the government performs what they believe to be its proper role, that is part of the solution to these really dire problems. So I'm hoping that that all comes across, even though, like I said, I'm with the title, I'm taking a huge amount of artistic license and uh, doing a little bit of psychologizing all over the place as well. Well, I think it's important to have perspective too. I mean, that's what frustrates me about all the infighting that happens among objectivists. Like, understanding what what really matters and what doesn't like even if you disagree don't we about some particular issue do we or do we not have the same fundamental values and in that case if there's a disagreement then it means someone's not correctly understanding the facts or maybe both people are but in different ways or whatever as opposed to like suppose that um someone had invited this guy to debate stalin now, I could not be civil to Stalin. I would not agree to be civil to Stalin. Right. I would actually lie and say that I intended to be civil, and then I would try to kill him when I got to the debate, right? No, I but, mean, so, so, I give, mean, so, give, kudos, so give kudos to Lindsay, right? Give kudos to Lindsay because he didn't, you know, come on, and then in the three minutes that I was going to give right. him uninterrupted, spew all this stuff out, right? He did not do that. That's, and that's great. But, but I guess I'm just saying it's, I think it's it's important for there not to be a loss of perspective where if someone disagrees with you about a concrete issue, even if it's really important that you distinguish between whether they disagree with you because they're evil fundamentally and they're truly the enemy or whether it's because they don't see all the particulars the same way and you have two different interpretations of an issue. And, and I think that's where that sort of, kind of a effective type of cooperation comes in, not sacrificing your values or just looking the other way if somebody is truly wrong, but differentiating between a fundamental difference and an unimportant or superficial difference where, yes, it's important, but the person isn't evil. They're not like, I mean, it's just hard to imagine that an objectivist, no matter how much they disagree with your own about particular things and, there have been times right, when I but thought I mean, that I didn't you know, agree with. Again, again, though, like he's he's defending a policy that they believe is going to push the country toward ruin, right? So that's a real thing. At the same time, is it going to help 
during a course of a debate like this to throw out, you know, sweeping condemnations and rude terminology and stuff. I don't think so. No, that doesn't. In fact, that that hurts a person's position. When you argue with someone uh, and you lose your cool and start yelling and name calling, that that person who's done that is has proclaimed that they lost the argument because they've right. got nothing left to offer except for rage. And right. um, that's that's not position. That's not a position of strength mm-hmm. at all. It's no. not useful. It's not just that it's a it's a matter of style. It is, right. you know, there is a certain stability that should exist in these intellectual engagements. But it's also just a matter of if you allow yourself to go there, you've lost. Yeah, I mean, you're not you're not conveying any substance, and you've been showing that it's a, emotion driving you in your particular choice of language. There now, you know, maybe at the end of a whole hour where you've really vigorously discussed the substance at the very end, you could say, okay. And that's why I say your own is a terrible chef. And, you know, again, I'm using the, <laughs> uh, the, the, the chef thing just to put it someplace else. Um, you know, th- this, this dessert was this way and that, you know, salad and the main course over here and that, and therefore your own is a terrible chef. Um, but that's, you're you're only entitled to those sorts of things after the big substantive discussion. We were only going to have an hour. I don't think you're going to get there to your own as a terrible chef if they want to, you know, think they are going to say that. Um, so that's my point. And so people have been saying, oh, well, have somebody else on to debate your own. Uh, first of all, understandably, I think there are, you know, there's a limited number of people that your own even wants to debate. <laughs> What I'm going to do instead, and, you know, again, people either value my show and they think that I'm good and honest about this or they think I'm not. I have a history of bringing people to have fairly contentious debates with your own. I've done it with Leonard. I've done it with uh, cartoonist Bosch Faustin about the terminology issue. Um, Mm -hmm. And I've I've moderated these debates and I've been objective about it. What I'm asking is if people want, you know, of course, I'm going to be looking at there's an essay uh, by Ed Powell. There's a post by uh, Lindsay Perigo that I'll have to, to wade through. And then there's also, I understand, uh, Michael Hurd has written something. So I'm, I'm going to be looking at this stuff. Uh, I've got a friend who sent me some things to think about. I'm going to do my very best to ask your own the most challenging questions based on everything that I look at. Uh, you know, people over at Solo think I'm a California airhead and they think I can't do this. F you. That's where I am at this point. Um, I will show you this Friday that I can. I urge you to tune in. I'm going to do this because I think, yeah, it's a, it's a valuable discussion and it needs to happen, but it needs to happen in, the, in a calm way. So if you want to go to the blog at don'tletitgo.com and put some questions in, if you put the questions in in a rude way, I'll be looking at them because there's a moderating thing that goes on with my blog. I'll be looking at them, but I may not post them if they're rude. I may edit them if they're rude. Uh, please don't be rude. Let's 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 actually have some sort of a substantive discussion about this issue. I think it, it's important. Um, the one thing I was going to add with you, Debbie, I don't know if you saw. So I've got in the program notes at the blog. There's a it it just happens to integrate with today. There was a story in New York Times today about the function of sleep and how sleep can help sort of clear out the noise in your brain and help you forget things. And one of the things they talked about in particular were these rats 
that they, you know, that sometimes the things they do to rats, you just, you do feel bad for rats, even if rats are yucky. Um, but Aww, the, ra- yeah, the, 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 the rats got um, shocked when they would walk across a certain floor in a certain chamber or whatever it was. And some rats, they were able to get the sleep or, you know, the restorative sleep that they needed. Some rats were unable to get the restorative sleep that they needed either because they, I think it's because of the drugs that they were given that would prevent this forgetting from happening. And what would happen is the rats that were unable to forget, they were fearful of everything all the time because they were not able to remember that the thing that they should only be afraid about was only associated with a certain area of their space, not with the whole space. Right. Mm -hmm. And so the whole, the whole idea is that if you sleep, one of the functions of sleep at least appears to be based on both physical and behavioral evidence that they talk about in this New York Times article. One of the functions is to help you forget the inessential and to solidify your learning about the important. So um, does that kind of tie in? No, you know, it, Trump care is not going to cover Trump brain, but sleep can help Trump brain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, it makes sense. Yeah. Um, and then, I don't know, Debbie, the last thing, I don't know if you want to talk about this or not. Did you watch the Super Bowl and Lady Gaga's halftime performance? No. I don't even know who played in the Super Bowl. I just couldn't care less about that kind of thing. <laughs> well, it was a really good game, and it was one that they had expected the Falcons to win. And then there was this huge upset and the Patriots went ahead when won, and it was amazing. And, but the halftime performance I was going to talk about, and I've got this Lady Gaga song that I'm actually going to play at the, at the end here. Uh, she gave a really excellent performance. Oh, do you know much about Lady Gaga? I, I mean, I know who she is. I've heard some of her songs. Some of them have nice melodies and that sort of thing. But but not very much about her overall. I don't I don't know that I knew like you know too much about her. I knew she was pretty eccentric. I also knew she was talented. But the thing that has struck me since watching the performance, first of all, I thought the performance was classy and tasteful and good. She was excellent. Um, but then I also have been listening to her on Spotify a bit, and so I'm getting a sense of you know what she writes about and the range of her talent and everything, and learning a little bit about her. And she's very much the way that I think of her is that she's like Prince that super talented, you know, sort of a, a, you know, um, very, very versatile songwriter, musician, singer, everything else. And she's up there, you know, playing the portable piano and stuff as she's zooming around the stage and she did her own stunts and everything. It was really a watch a video if you can. Um, so there's mm-hmm. that. And then she combines, like Prince did, a serious interest in respect for religion, which flows through a lot of her songs. And at the same time, this unabashed out there sexuality about her. And I don't know if mm-hmm. you knew much about Prince, but Prince combined those two things, right? Where he just had this kind of benevolent, joyous, you know, celebration of his sexuality at the same time with some pretty extreme religious views tied in and it was this interesting mix and he had his own style with a lot of purple and everything um but with lady gaga it's similar that's the way that that i perceive it so um 
yeah, if, if you have the time, you might go check out her Super Bowl performance. It, en- it did end up being tasteful. It wasn't raunchy in any way, but it was sexy. You know, she's sexy. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I would say check it out. But I'm going to play Poker Face. Do you know that song? Uh, yes, I do. Okay. Well, hopefully you like it. Feel free to hang on. I thank you for talking with me through these topics, especially through my artistic license, psychological free for all in the second part of the show. Um, and I hope, I hope, I hope you join on Friday. And if you have any questions, Debbie, that you want, you know, go ahead and send them in through the blog or email or whatever. I'd love that. Yeah, we'll do. I'll try and come up with some good devil's advocate questions. I, I bet, uh, I know Ed Powell, uh, you mentioned earlier, I know he dis- seems to disagree a lot with your own. So maybe he has some things that he, wants to contribute or I, I mean that might be well he's got too. he's got his whole essay so I've I've got that essay and that's one of the things that I'm looking at and formulating <clears throat> my questions for your own and yeah I definitely I want to nail this issue down and you know in addition all the stupid side issues uh, see I said the word stupid I shouldn't say stupid but there are side issues that have come up around it that I don't think are nearly as important as just solving the central issue of a proper immigration policy now or in an ideal society. So we'll talk about it. Anyway, thanks, Debbie. And um, yep. hopefully we'll see you at least in, in the chat room then on Friday and, and we'll talk soon. Like I said, everybody, I'm going to go ahead and see if I can play this song for you. I've got my little phone queued up. Let me see if it's going to start playing. Thank you. 
Bye-bye. 